Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation with Professor Margaret Berman, author of A Clinician's Guide to Acceptance-Based Approaches for Weight Concerns, the Accept Yourself framework and accompanying workbook. But before we get going, I wanted to offer a greeting from Wurundjeri country in Southeast Australia. I respectfully acknowledge Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander peoples of the many lands of the Kulin Nation and beyond as traditional owners and custodians of Australia. We acknowledge the wisdom of elders, both past and present, and pay our respects to the communities of today. We recognise that First Peoples of Australia have an ongoing and deep-seated connection to land and culture and value their unique contribution to both us and the wider society. Sovereignty has never been ceded and Australia always was and always will be Aboriginal land. For those of you unfamiliar with Professor Margaret Berman, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Margaret has this wonderful, calm and yet excellently feisty temperament, which I personally really enjoy. Here we talk about Margaret's early exposure to size acceptance communities and weight science in ways which set in motion an important trajectory in Margaret's career. Although Margaret's first exposure to acceptance and commitment therapy, shortened to ACT, didn't have her convinced, she quickly realised through her client work that people loved this therapeutic style and since then really hasn't looked back. We talked about acceptance not as a feeling but as a set of behaviours and we talked about avoidance and the ways we all experience it, ugh, awkward, and the powerful ways we can turn towards ourselves in moments of pain, engage with our values and enhance meaning in our lives. Another thing we talk about is the way that acceptance and commitment therapy and acceptance-based approaches really intersect with uh, dieting, disordered eating, and diet culture more in general in ways that can support us to in turn support our clients towards body liberation. So a little bit about Margaret. She has a PhD in counselling and social psychology from the University of Minnesota. She is currently Program Director and Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology at Augsburg University and Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at the Giesel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. She was the recipient of the 2015 Hitchcock Foundation Scholars Career Development Award for her research and development of the Accept Yourself Intervention she is past chair of the Society for Counselling Psychology section for the promotion of psychotherapy science and is on the editorial boards of the Counselling Psychologist and the Journal of Counselling Psychology. So she's not a busy person at all. Margaret is definitely a feminist, cognitive behavioural therapist who trains clinicians in acceptance and commitment therapy and self-acceptance based interventions throughout the US. So to find out more about what the dietitian, the Mindful Dietitian is about, including supervision, training, network, and of course, this podcast, head on over to the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au. Thank you so much for being here and sharing in these important conversations. And I really hope that you enjoy this particular episode with Professor Margaret Berman. Hello, Margaret, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. What a pleasure it is to be speaking with you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. So you and I have been connected for a little while now as co-collaborators and guests on the recent Act for Dietitians live online course, which was hosted by EDRD Pro and the wonderful Sumner Brooks. It was so, so much fun. Oh my gosh, wasn't it so fun? So yeah. it was Margaret and I and also Dr. Janine Anderson, uh, who um, is host of the Eating Disorder Recovery podcast. So we 
Um, just to, Margaret is aware, you are aware of this, but maybe our listeners are not, that um, Summoner and I actually hunted around for quite a while. We wanted to be very specific about who we um, invited to, to be a guest. And of course, um, a lot of people will be aware um, that you are not only an accept, acceptance and commitment therapy specialist, but also a Hazel-lined therapist as well. So I'm hoping that we can kind of dig into a bit of that today. How does that sound? That sounds great. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So maybe let's set the scene a little bit and tell us um, maybe tell us a little bit about you and how you kind of um, at your career trajectory to date. Yeah, so I guess I'll focus on how sort of both ACT and um, a health at every size or size acceptance, uh, size acceptance approach sort of showed up in my life. Um, and I think in some ways they came in similar streams, although I came to size acceptance first. Um, I think my route into size acceptance started with a book that came out in the 1990s that it seems like now very few people have heard of. It was called Women on Large. And it was a book by a photographer and a writer. So Debbie Notkin was the writer and Lori Toby Edison was the photographer. They still, uh, they still blog at Body and Politic. Um, but in the 1990s, they brought out what was a really innovative book at the time. And it was photographs of fat women uh, of all sizes. So sort of small fat women all the way up to sort of supersized fat women. Um, and they were, um, depicted nude, so all the photographs were nudes, and they were all taken in um, just a variety of spots that were really important to the people in the pictures. And they went with writings that were sometimes by Debbie Notkin, but also sometimes by the people who were photographed. And uh, it was just, everyone should get a copy of it. Incredibly powerful book and just um, groundbreaking at the time. They showed one thing that was groundbreaking about uh, the book that I think in fact still hasn't been equaled was there was um, people from every background, except I think most of the people in the book uh, were science fiction fans. I think that's where they had actually, the community that they had started in. Um, but they were, uh, there were black women, there were uh, women of all different colors, there were white women, there were musicians, there were computer programmers, there were just all kinds of people. There were younger women, there were older women depicted in this book. And there were essays that talked about size acceptance. And um, that was my first exposure, I think, to size acceptance as a concept. And I was young enough that it just made perfect sense to me. And um, a little bit later on in my life, when I was in graduate school, I began to have the opportunity to teach uh, and was teaching classes at the University of Minnesota in the United States about um, the psychology of women. And I would give lectures on uh, the science of weight. And at that time, there were just beginning to be these little glimmers. There was an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association in JAMA in 1998 that was just seminal around um, the idea that diets didn't work and that we needed to stop prescribing them. And uh, so I assigned that to my students and people would come in and be just shocked, you know, that, that presenting the science of weight loss. I mean, what's fascinating to me is that the science of weight loss hasn't changed much in the intervening, you know, 30 years. Um, it really hasn't. There's this, uh, the references, uh, the references change every year, but what they're saying doesn't. And so people would be just shocked and astonished. And I had larger bodied students who would come up to me afterwards and cry and say this was so meaningful to them. And at the same time, um, or a little, well, I guess a little later, actually, uh, towards the end of graduate school, I got some training in ACT as part of my internship, um, and I didn't like it at all. Uh, my initial reaction to ACT was it was the dumbest thing I had ever heard of. It didn't make any sense to me. I was a feminist therapist. I was a cognitive behavioral therapist, but I could not wrap my mind around this thing. And at the time, I was doing training in eating disorders and had always been interested in eating disorders. And came at uh, eating disorders from a feminist perspective, but was working with young women with, with very severe intractable anorexia and who were medically unstable and very thin and you know, nothing worked. So why not try something that I knew wouldn't work, <laughs> you know? And right. so I started to try to do act with them. And there was also a little bit of a, a political component to it and still is for me in the sense that I always think uh, 
George Orwell has this quote that I really like because I think it really well captures the way weight loss works and the way body shame works in women and, and now increasingly in, in people of all genders. Um, and he says, circus dogs jump when the trainer cracks his whip, but the really well-trained dog is the one that turns his somersault when there is no whip. You know, and I really think the genius of weight loss and body shame is that it is an absolutely perfect way of exerting control over a group of people that you want to control. And in the sense that you can install it as sort of software in a person's mind, as a set of ideas, and they can't get it out. And it's irresistible. It comes with this set of rules that's very internally consistent, makes a lot of logical sense. But if you follow them, uh, if you follow these rules faithfully over many years, it will make the problem worse. And since one of the rules is if it gets worse, it's your own fault. Now you're trapped in this vicious cycle and you will never be able to do anything else useful with your life or your time, right? Because you're all balled up with this. And uh, even before I came to ACT, I thought that was an interesting dynamic and wondered how to break it. And what I liked about ACT when working with women with eating disorders is it let me set aside that whole battle with this software that had been installed in people's heads. And instead of trying to fix it, make it better and make it go away, which we couldn't do, we couldn't unlearn what they'd been taught, I could instead say, hey, is that really important to you? Is that what you want your life to be about? And even the most um, psychiatrically ill people with eating disorders I ever worked with, all of them said, I actually don't care about this at all. This is, you know, being the most beautiful or the skinniest woman on earth is not important to me. I just am caught in this thing. So I could say, well, what is important to you? And we could work on that. And that was what got me attracted to ACT, was the idea both that you could just have whatever you had in your head, not respond to it, not respond ineffectively to it, but instead you could say, now, what, what is it that really matters to me? And that that was not just... Um, psychologically powerful, although it is psychologically powerful, it was politically powerful. It would allow people to set aside a system that was designed to oppress them and move forward on things that actually mattered. So that was, I think, what got me into ACT or persuaded me that it was uh, worth doing. Also, it was just reinforcing patients got better when I used it. So that made me want to use it more. I remember, um, didn't you have a personal experience of uh, speaking with somebody about ACT and they had a particular reaction. Do you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the very first time I was trained in ACT. So I went to a weekend workshop um, the way many people get their first exposure to ACT. And as I told you, I thought it was just the dumbest thing in the world. And I came home at the end of the day and uh, my husband, who makes guitars and violins um, it, for a living, so he's not a psychologist. He has a very fun, cool job. And uh, he said, the way he often did, well, how was your day? You know, tell me about your day. And I said, oh, I went to this really stupid, terrible workshop. And he said, well, tell me about it. And so I started to explain the ideas I'd been learning. And because ACT is your experiential and my training was experiential, I started sort of trying some things I'd learned in the, in the workshop with him. And I went through a creative hopelessness exercise with him. And I don't even remember what the problem was that he, he like had us play with. Um, but you know, I'm telling him all about it and walking him through the workshop that I thought was so stupid. And he's like, oh, this is great. It makes so much sense. And clearly having all these fabulous insights and, you know, shifting things around in his life. And I thought, oh, what's going on here? This is really odd. You know, that I, I, I guess I thought, well, it can't be the placebo effect because I don't believe in it. You know? So that was interesting. It is interesting, you know, when we have these conversations with other people in our lives, whether it's, you know, our immediate family or friends or our clients, how we can really learn so much more about the depth and breadth of what is presented to us as maybe a theory or a framework or a model of care. It's just so enriching, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the experience when I started to try out ACT ideas with uh, the women with anorexia that I was working with. And um, I didn't, I was so new in my training, I sort of didn't know what I was doing, honestly, but they got it and they were able to run with it and really saw the powerful things that would happen 
um, when we went down that road. And also just sort of learning that larger principle that when I steered into my own discomfort as a therapist and into things that were difficult for me, there were often huge payoffs that I didn't expect, which is very act consistent, of course. So acceptance and commitment therapy is um, part of a, I guess, a, a broader set of modalities or frameworks, which is around, um, which centers really around acceptance and flexibility. So acceptance is a, can be a bit of a, a, a tricky word, can't it, for people. Um, so, you know, what, what's your experience around acceptance, not only as a word, but also as a, as, as a construct um, and the way in which, you know, we can, we can speak about and work with acceptance-based approaches when, oh, it can be really tricky. Even the word can be really tricky for people. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's hard, there's a couple things that are hard about that word. I don't shy away from using it because it's inherent to the therapy and it's, it's actually, I think, the most powerful element of the therapy, at least in my own clinical experience. But the problem with the word is that people imagine it as a feeling or a state that they're going to reach. And at least in my experience, it's not a feeling. Uh, acceptance actually is a set of moves. It's a set of behaviors. It's a set of things you do. Um, the feelings, I mean, that's one of the biggest lessons of ACT is that you actually don't have control over your feelings. Um, and this becomes especially important when we work around body, body image issues, because people now, especially with the sort of body positivity movement, people have the idea that um, one of the things I struggle with is um, among body acceptance activists, or some subset of Hayes folks, there's sort of a replacing of diet rules with a bunch of um, sort of intuitive eating rules or health at every size rules or a different set of rules that you're gonna follow. And I'm not sure that's workable. And, and um, one of the things that's hard about that is one of the rules that I think people hear, and I'm not even sure therapists are saying this, but this is what clients hear is you should love your body. And if you don't love your body or you don't like your body uh, or you're angry at your body, you failed somehow. You're not actually really good at this body positivity stuff. You're actually, and so we're saying with acceptance, you should accept your body. Like you're going to feel accepting of it. And you don't actually have control over that, you know, and, and uh, that's a very unattainable goal. And I don't think all that worthy a goal. There, we don't have to stand in front of the mirror having fights with ourselves about what we see there. Instead, at least in my mind, it's helpful to think of acceptance as a set of moves that lets you interact more productively or usefully with pain that you've been avoiding. And the way I tend to talk about that with clients is, um, you know, up till now, you've had a bunch of thoughts or feelings or physical sensations or you name it, things that happen inside you that you avoid. And tell me about that. Can you make a list for me of the things that you're avoiding, the feelings you're avoiding, the thoughts you're avoiding, the sensations you're avoiding? Let's get those all down on paper. Let's think about that. So right now, you know, so for example, if your mother makes you feel terrible about yourself because she says terrible things about you every time you talk to her. So when the phone rings, you avoid her. You, you don't pick it up because you don't want to, you don't want what's going to happen when you interact with her. You're avoiding. With acceptance, you're leaning in, you're sitting forward and grabbing. And okay, what can I really get out of that experience? How can I get up real close with it? When mom calls, I'm gonna actually pick up the phone and I'm gonna listen to her and I'm gonna mindfully observe what shows up when she says those things she says. I'm not gonna uh, get into some fight with her. I'm not gonna argue with her or with myself about whether she's right. I'm just gonna notice what shows up. I'm going to lean in and have whatever it is I've been avoiding. And I'm going to see what does that do. So if I avoid, the lovely thing about this is there's always an opportunity and, and clients will avoid all the time often. So you, when you avoid, you get to say, well, what showed up for you after you avoid it? When you didn't take mom's call, what happened? And maybe the person says back to you, well, I spent the whole evening, first of all, feeling guilty and also thinking about all the nasty things she would have said if I'd answered the phone anyway and feeling terrible about myself. And then I had a binge, you know, okay, well, all right. The next time she called, you answered. What happened when she answered? Well, at first I felt really angry because she asked how my diet was going and that was awful. And then I began to feel sorry for her because she just can't let go of this and she can't see how I'm growing and developing. And actually by the end of the call, I was mostly feeling some compassion for my mom. 
oh, well, which of those two experiences was more fun? <laughs> you know, which of those two experiences would you prefer to have in the future? That's what I love about acceptance. When you treat it as a series of moves and you look at what the move is, how can I lean in on this thing I usually pull back from? Then you very quickly discover that acceptance um, is helpful because it works. Because at the end of engaging in those behaviors, often you feel better. And even if you don't feel better, you've often gotten to a more useful place. You can do something different. Um, and so that's how I think about acceptance. I, you know, it's not useful to talk about it as a feeling. It's useful to talk about it as what's being avoided and how can we lean in and experience it instead. Yeah, I love the way that you explain and step us through that. And you did that so beautifully in the course. So I'm thrilled that you were able to <laughs> rejuvenate that again for us today. It's and, and, you know, a wider audience can, can hear you speak about this. I'm curious, Margaret, to hear a little bit more um, about uh, and to invite you to share a little bit more about avoidance. So mm -hmm. avoidance is, um, is something that is common to the human experience, of course. Um, but one of the one of the things that I love most about ACT is it helps us to be able to identify and name in a non-judgmental way, but in a more an open-hearted, open-minded way, the experiences that we have that we avoid, which stop us moving, as you say, in the service of what's more most important to us, especially, you know, more broader, uh, long-term kind of values and direction. So I'm curious to hear you talk a, a little bit more about, you know, what, what is it that we avoid? Like, what are the experiences that typically as humans we avoid, even kind of more broadly? Um, and then how would we notice this showing up for us humans? Mm -hmm. Wow, it's a really interesting question. I mean, the thing is we avoid everything, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, when you think about just your day today, I bet you could name three or four things today that you avoided, right? An email that you didn't feel like opening, or a phone call that you knew you have to make, but you didn't make today, or, you know, we can list a whole bunch of different things, even, even in quarantine, right? Even when we're not going outside our houses, we're still having all, or dishes that you failed to do that you know they're sitting in the kitchen and they need to be done and you just didn't feel like doing it. So I think that experience of avoidance is actually ever present with us and that urge to avoid whatever it is, you know, the, feeling of fatigue I'll get when I do the dishes or the moment of anxiety that I'm going to feel when I pick up the phone to make this call I know I need to make or whatever it is. Um, so I think we're very aware of it. What I think we're less aware of is that we have alternatives in terms of responding to that urge to avoid. And we're also even less aware, particularly if we're not practiced with acceptance, we're even less aware that those alternatives might actually move us through the unpleasant thing faster or get it past uh, get it to, get us to a place where we could work more effectively with it faster or more efficiently um one of the things i love about act is the focus not on what what's true but on what works like i, I mean I, I sort of tell my clients i don't mind if you avoid but who am i to tell you not to avoid a call from your mother that you think is going to be painful I, I got no business telling you what to do in that regard i'm not here to tell you that's morally bad or I'm here to help you explore whether there are alternatives that are less painful um, or that are more functional in getting you where you want to go. And you're going to tell me what's um, most useful to you. Uh, you know, for the longest time, I don't love talking on the phone. Little, you know, just the littlest bit of social anxiety. And so I don't love taking phone calls. I don't love making phone calls. And um, for the longest time, I was a person who would leave my voicemail, even when I was, um, right now I'm mostly a professor, but when I was a full-time working clinician, I would leave my voicemail to the end of the day because I hated accepting those calls so much. But at the end of the day, after I'd seen a whole, whole slate of patients, I was exhausted. And also the patients in crisis have now been waiting for hours from me and for a phone call from me, and now they're all activated. And when I learned about, um, when I, when I learned about ACT and began to think about how to apply it in my own life, I started, started my day with check voicemail and then at lunch check voicemail and discovered that that made everything about my workday better. You know, the, the, the idea behind the avoidance was, oh gosh, if I pick up and check that voicemail, I'm going to have to deal with all those calls and it's going to be awful, 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 awful. And then of course I felt guilty and all of that. The reality was, 
answering the phone calls is much less painful than avoiding them was. But I didn't know that until I actually did the acceptance move, right? I had to do it in order to sort of feel what would happen next. So I think it's, it's not that we can't identify it. It's that the urge to avoid comes with this belief that um, bad feelings are bad. We should try not to have them. Uh, you better duck away from them to get away from them. Uh, we have this whole set of cultural beliefs about it that we follow, even though our own experiences would tell us very quickly, yeah, that's just not true, you know? What I really love about the examples that you're giving here, Margesh, is that uh, uh, most people, in fact, I would probably say everyone listening, could really relate to those. Mm -hmm. And personally, I mean, you have also reflected this, not only in today's conversation, but then, you know, in our previous conversations, that one of the things about ACT is that it is, it, it the that the personal practice that we can undertake is so powerful in us, in us, you know, bringing this to our work with other people, whether that's individuals mm -hmm. or communities or organizations or a little bit more, you know, collectively as well. Mm -hmm. And it really is a framework or a model of care or, you know, however you want to phrase it that, um, invites us to become a lot more familiar with the activities, not only of our own mind, but then how, um, how a little bit more holistically or in an integrated way, we experience life, I guess, as human beings and what that means in terms of the way that we interact with others and, you know, a little bit more collectively. So that's what I, I think, um, I'm not sure about you, but for me, it really, it was the, it was one of the most powerful mechanisms with which I was like, oh, right, yes. Oh, yes, this is me as well. <laughs> it's not just a doing too, you know, it's a being with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, all of the third wave psychotherapies, the sort of what makes them third wave is this integration of Buddhist principles, right, with what's mm -hmm. going on. And boy, I've never appreciated them more than right now at this moment, right, when... Mm. Uh, the whole world is facing all of this pain and all of this suffering, and we are all in it together. You know, we're absolutely all in it in exactly the same places, and we're not experiencing it all differently, you know. Uh, same, same storm, different boat. Yes, I was just going to go for that. Someone was saying that same thing, but we are all in the same storm. And that awareness that when you sit with a patient, you're just two frail, suffering humans hanging out together, right? Like, one of you may be in more acute suffering and one of you may have less privilege to, um, you know, not as nice a boat to navigate the storm in as you might, but on a fundamental level, you're both in the same soup. You're both dealing with the same things. And that's the foundation of the empathy you have. It's the foundation of your humility as a therapist. Um, and just the awareness that, yeah, what your patient is struggling with is probably something you're struggling with too, right? On some level. Yeah. Absolutely. 100% agree with that for sure. So Margaret, um, in the in the introduction, I've already spoken quite a bit about your amazing book, which for me really put a lot of the pieces together with acceptance and commitment therapy. So just as a reminder for people, it's called A Clinician's Guide to Acceptance-Based Approaches for Weight Concerns. And this comes from your Accept Yourself framework. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, Margaret, do you mind speaking a little more to how um, ACT is integrated, um, not only maybe in clinical eating disorders, but in more broadly in maybe body image or, or weight and body concerns? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I love about integrating these two approaches is they both make so much sense and they make so much sense together. ACT acceptance is right in the name. It's right there that the focus of ACT is on accepting things that can't be controlled. And what in ACT can't be controlled? Well, we talk about things inside the skin and we talk about emotions and thoughts and um, you know, physical sensations, but in a really fundamental way, your body is not controllable. You don't actually have, I mean, it's, it's a healthist idea here in the United States. It's an endemic idea. And I think in many places throughout the Western world, this idea that you're responsible for your health, that, you know, um, somehow you're personally responsible if you get diabetes or hypertension or, you know, that's at variance with the science. It doesn't, um, it doesn't fit with what we know about how diseases work, about how chronic diseases work. 
Um, but it fits with people's idea that maybe we could avoid death if we just tried really, really hard, you know, <laughs> this wish, this, you know, fantasy that we have as a culture. And what I love about ACT is that the framework really is you accept the things that can't be changed. And one of the things we can't change is uh, the vagaries of our physical body. We can take care of ourselves. We can engage in good self-care, but there actually isn't a way for me to guarantee I'm going to have a particular size of body or shape. I'm thinking more and more these days about I have no control over the age of my body. I have no control over what breaks on it, uh, what level of ability or disability it has either now or at any given moment in the future. And so our bodies are one more thing that I think fits into this ACT framework as being within the skin and not under your personal control. And so in that way, it fits very well with um, what I think of as a health at every size approach or a, um, I want better language for health at every size that incorporates what I see as much more of a radical social justice mission. That's part of the Hayes principles and it always has, but I think just the name of it, health at every size gets people focused on personal responsibility and like what you're eating and how much you're exercising and things like that, rather than the larger framework in which we live our lives and have the opportunity or not for health. But so the two things fit together very well. And that was what got me interested in integrating them. I also thought they um, integrated well from an empirical perspective in the sense that there was evidence that ACT is broadly helpful for a whole bunch of different psychological concerns, uh, including some evidence at the time I started to develop Accept Yourself, I'd already done some ACT-based work in eating disorders. So we knew that it had some promise there. Um, and then Health at Every Size shows uh, the ability to improve people's physical and psychosocial health, um, you know, also empirically and also in places where more conventional approaches have failed, right? So I tend to use, I don't only do ACT, I do some CBT, I do some psychodynamic work, I do lots of different things. But I'll tell you, I always use ACT when the patient who comes into my office has had their problem for longer than I've been alive. That doesn't happen too much anymore because I've gotten so old, but you know, <laughs> they've had it for decades. Um, it's a chronic problem. I try ACT because ACT is often useful when other things have failed. And health at every size, uh, nobody tried that first. The whole world was very stuck on weight loss and we're gonna do that to solve the health problems that go with living in a, in a larger body. And you know, it took all this time to discover a health at every size approach. And sure enough, the you know, research literature suggests that it's much more promising in terms of enhancing physical health for people in larger bodies. So empirically, it makes sense. Theoretically, it makes sense. And also I thought that by combining the two treatments, we could get a real paradigm shift that, um, in psychology and in um, physical health modalities, our emphasis has really been on exerting personal individual control. Control your mood, control your mind. God forbid you should never be depressed, you should never be anxious, you should be happy all the time, even in the midst of a global catastrophe. Um, you know, that's been our emphasis. And same with the body, you better control your body. Somehow you should avoid uh, any chronic disease that you might have genetic risk for, just magically with your perfect diet, you will never die somehow. Um, that's been our emphasis. I don't think that's workable. We all die in the end. We all experience suffering. So I wanted a paradigm shift that would create um, a treatment that instead of focusing on controlling our minds and bodies, which are not very uh, controllable, on accepting our minds and bodies and on working effectively towards a good life in the minds and bodies we have right now. And that's why I thought it made sense to fit them together. Absolutely. Yeah, it 100% does. It fits really nicely as both a broader paradigm and then also the the principles or the practices and the experientials that go underneath mm -hmm. it. You know, people seem to respond, you know, really well. And certainly, um, you know, from a personal perspective, I've found a lot of depth and breadth, you know, in the work that we're able mm -hmm. to do with different communities mm -hmm. so um what i have got to what i have come to know about you margaret is that you are very you are somebody who is very passionate about um also justice oriented approaches and um intersections of mm -hmm. uh, things like you know, patriarchy and body oppression and body justice mm -hmm. uh into 
uh, your work, you know, understanding um, the intersections of white supremacy and, and racial justice and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we might be able to move in that direction because I know this is something that you speak to so beautifully and I know this is a, this is a big part of, the, of you know, um, the passion that you bring to the world. So I'm going to just hand it over to you. I came at this work from feminism. And I mean, to situate that, I came at this work from white feminism, which is amazing in many ways and also has some problems, um, some real serious problems, uh, in that uh, white feminism has been and always has been embedded in um, white supremacy as well as everything else. So I, in some ways, my work was um, fixed on social justice from the beginning. And then in other ways, boy, I'm still learning and I still have so much to learn. And, you know, I got into working with eating disorders in the first place before I even knew what kind of a clinician I would be, before I knew about ACT, before I knew about Hayes in a formal way. I got interested in eating disorders because I thought they made absolutely no sense at all to me. They looked to me like part of a system of oppression, of making mostly women um, hate themselves so they couldn't do anything else, couldn't do anything effective with their life. And because that was where I was situated from the very beginning, like even before I entered graduate school, I think that really sensitized me towards um, looking at what was happening. People come to eating disordered work uh, for different reasons. A lot of people come to eating disordered work because of personal experience with, with eating disorders. And I didn't have that. What I had was this rage at this whole system that struck me as just unbelievably oppressive to my sisters, to my friends, to people I knew who, um, could be doing so much more amazing work if only they weren't caught in this trap. And so that's what got me interested in it. And it was very natural for me then to become interested in the intersections with ageism, with ableism, um, all of those very uh, obvious intersections. And I was able to use my feminism as a launching off point. I feel like with racism, I've been very much late to the party um, and have really had to learn from uh, much wiser folks and people, people of color themselves have had to learn how my own indoctrination into white supremacy and my own racism has kept me from seeing how race intersects. Um, but of course, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you see the way, for example, in the United States that slavery as a system of control over black bodies still affects um, black women's uh, visions of, of their own bodies and also white women's and other women's um, visions of their own bodies that they're sort of embedded in this system of violence that this country was born and raised in and still is living in. You know, once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. You see it everywhere. And so I see it as one of my obligations as a clinician to just be sensitized to that and to talk about it and um, to make space to talk about it. One thing I've learned from working with um, folks of color, and a lot of my clinical work took place in northern, rural northern New England, where there's a very small number of people of color in terms of demography. The overall demography of New Hampshire where I was living is 99% white. But I saw a lot more people of color as patients than 1%. And the reason was because there was tremendous racism trying to exist in that environment. Um, and so folks needed more psychological help to deal with the racism. And yet folks would come to my office and I would ask, you know, okay, how do you, um, you know, you're a person of color, I'm a white clinician, how do you feel about that? And, um, and about working with me in that environment. And people always say, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I don't expect to see anything else. This is, you know, Northern New Hampshire. What? All of my helpers are white. Um, that didn't mean it was fine. It just meant that that was something that uh, would get us through this uncomfortable interaction quickly. And it took me a long time to learn how to directly talk about racism and that often I was the one who was in the position of power to say, hey, that sounds, that interaction you just described at work, that sounds like it might've been racist. Did you think it was racist? And then to have my client of color say, oh, yes. <laughs> and can we talk about that safely? Um, and of course, we couldn't always, you know, because my racism would lead me to step in it, but at least opening up that space um, and allowing uh, us to talk about it. And I just feel like um, I'm still just very much at the beginning of that and learning. And I think uh, for myself and what I would tell any other white clinician or white person working in a world that is not white um, is that we have to do the work. 
there would be no racism if it weren't for white people. You know, we invented it, we own it, you know, it wouldn't exist without us, you know, so it's our job to undo it, which means we have to go and be students and we have to go and learn and we also have to put our money where our mouths are um, in every possible way. You had asked me about, you know, in advance of this uh, meeting today, you'd asked me about, uh, are there organizations that um, I would want to give a shout out to or that um, I would want your listenership to sort of lift up. And of course I could think of lots of places, but when I think of an organization that in this moment, I really would like to see people sending money to that works in the space around both body acceptance and also all elements of intersectionality, I thought of Sonia Renee Taylor and her amazing work. Um, and she is just so amazing and groundbreaking and her work at the body is not an apology. Um, and folks can support her work in, every, in millions of ways. She has some fabulous books, including books for like young people. And also she has a subscription model. So you can actually just go and outright donate and support kind of her work. So that's one organization I can think of that's doing this work at, at that intersection of body acceptance. And, and what I love about her work is she works she works on race, she works on racism, but she also works on ableism, she works on body image, she works on sexism, she works on all of these intersecting systems of oppression that are hitting all of us in different ways, which I think is amazing. She does amazing work. And she's also been at it for many, many years. Yeah, yeah, she is not a newcomer on the scene. And there's become, you know, especially just even in this last year, uh, you know, as I think many white uh, folks all over the world are waking up to some degree. Um, and suddenly there's a lot more resources and a lot more um, things available. Uh, like I think of Leila Saad's book, Me and White Supremacy, right? Um, and the copy I have from it is so old. She, for a while, she'd had it on her website as a free download. I don't even have the new book version of it yet. But, you know, one month. Um, training for white clinicians or for white um, white people who are interested in really digging deep and exploring their own white, white supremacy and their own contributions to the problem. You know, ultimately, I think it's not going to be even lifting up each other's work that's going to do it. It's going to be have to be much more direct. Like in the United States, we're going to have to pay reparations for slavery, for example, mm -hmm. if we're ever going to get to equality. Um, but, but a place we can start as clinicians or as psychologists is looking to um, and paying for the work of our colleagues of color who are doing and willing to work in this space to help educate us and, um, and also not letting that be enough. Like at my own institution, I belong to a um, undoing white body supremacy cohort. We're all white. The facilitators are white. We're not asking black colleagues to do this work for us. Um, instead, we're working on, okay, what racist acts do we engage in and how do we undo that? And I think we have to do that too, you know. It can't just be learning. We have to do the work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And it, it, it isn't to say that, um, you know, reading and listening and learning is mm -hmm. not a part of it. It's just it's not the end part. game. Right. It's a huge part right. of it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's a stepping stone. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, once you, what Maya Angelou said, once you know better, you can do better right? But you have to do better or the knowing better doesn't do you much good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we can be learned and we can be thinkers and we can be reflectors, but that doesn't matter a shit if you just ah. they're doing nothing. Right, that you have to show up. I mean, I mentioned to you, I'm from the Twin Cities. I My hometown is Minneapolis and now I live in the city next door, St. Paul. Um, so this has been much on our minds and much in the moment right now. And um, because I'm at high risk for COVID, we've, we've been very strict quarantine since March. But when this happened in my hometown and in my in my home, you know, uh, we were just anxious. What are we going to do to be part of this enormous up, uprising and protesting uh, that was going on? And I'll tell you, I went to a, um, it was a uh, um, caravan, car caravan, going to the attorney that initially was going to prosecute the cops who had murdered George Floyd and going to his home in South Minneapolis, which is a, a sort of wealthy part of the city. And so we drove our cars there and we just gathered in our cars around his home and there was a protest. And the next day, 
they had reassigned the case to the attorney general here who the family had wanted to take the case, uh, Keith Ellison. And it was the most effective activism I've ever done in my life. You know, one day we showed up and demanded change and the next day change occurred. And I think we are in that moment right now. And I think it's relevant, um, not just politically to sort of larger issues of racism and, and um, things that were the racism pandemic, the multiple pandemics we're dealing with right now, but it's relevant to body image work too, and to act in the sense that once you get very clear on your values and on what you're being commanded to do, I had so much fear going to that um, car caravan. I had fears related to COVID, I brought my kid and his girlfriend. I had fears with about whether she, her parents would allow her to do that. She was staying with us uh, for like a period of time. Um, you know, would it be okay to take her? I had fears about whether it would be safe. It wasn't clear that it would be safe in the days immediately following George Floyd's murder. Um, and yet my heart told me, my values told me, you have to stand up and stand for justice. And so there was, it was a very act moment. I had every thought about, oh, don't go, don't get in the car, don't, don't go to the convenient place, don't step out of the car in the convenient place and make signs to put on the car. And yet at every step, sort of acting in line with my values. And your listeners may have a very diverse set of values, but I think that's the message, that whatever it is that um, is stopping you on the inside, thoughts, feelings, sensations, fears, um, from doing what your heart and your values are saying, that's where I should be doing and that's the way I should be showing up in this very difficult, demanding time. That's the direction, right? That's where we should be going. Thank you, Margaret, so much. That was such a, a powerful and very concrete experience that you shared, you know, mm -hmm. which kind of brings everything together so nicely. It was amazing. It was, well, once you, once you've been trained in act, you see it everywhere, right? Oh, right, you know what right. I'm talking about. I do. <laughs> yeah. I do. Yeah. That set, this set of dynamics that allow you to be more flexible, you right. know, whereas maybe in the past I would have said, oh, I want to go. Of course I care. Of course I'm in support of a George Floyd's family, but boy, it's just too dangerous or it's just too risky or I, I shouldn't go out. Nope. I knew where I needed to be. Right. Yeah. And, not that that would have been a bad decision either in line with different values, but I knew where I needed to be in that moment. And that's one of the powerful things about ACT that you really um, spoke about just now is that it is aligned with personal values and it's not for anybody else to tell you or to dictate what your values should or can be. That, that is, is deeply personal. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a, an example that I love of that, how you can't always tell, uh, even in yourself or when you're working with a client, you can't always just assume sort of what is avoidance and what is in service to values. So I had a patient that I worked with for a while who was um, had a variety of sort of invisible degenerative uh, disabilities. So uh, she walked without, a, uh, without mobility aids other than a cane most of the time. And to look at her, you would not have known she had any disabilities. But privately, she suffered with a great deal of problems with both chronic pain and also um, very limited energy as a result of these degenerative illnesses that she had. And she had been an athlete as a younger woman. And she had tremendous anger and grief around having lost all of that. And uh, as a result of the medications she took and, and the disease process itself, she'd also gained an enormous amount of weight. And she felt very, very angry with her body for being fat and disabled and not letting her be the athlete that she'd always wanted to be. And so one of the places that she and I worked around was on returning to her athletic um, endeavors. She had been a mountain climber. She had been a skier, she had a number of different um, sort of sports like that. And I wanted her to get back to that. That was something that clearly was something she was passionate about and loved and a deep, those kinds of adventures were deeply part of her values. Um, but an early part of our process had been her saying, you just don't get it. You know, you want me to be one of those inspirational disabled people. You don't understand how much pain I'm really in. Mm -hmm. You just don't understand. And um, so one day she did something to try and prove something to me. She went out, we hadn't talked about it, it wasn't a therapy homework assignment, and she went skiing. And we'd had a lot of discussions about how she could prep for skiing, and one of the things was, 
to buy a pair of snow pants in her size because she had a lot of shame around needing the size she needed now that her body was larger than it had been. And, um, and I think she had had the homework assignment to go get the snow pants and she'd gone and done that. And, but then she went skiing and alone on the mountain by herself. She hadn't been in maybe 10 years. She went, she, she didn't get hurt or injured, which was great. Um, nothing terrible happened uh, in the moment. Uh, she went down a couple of runs, but she felt terrible about it because she wasn't um, successful the way she'd been as a younger woman. And she was in terrible pain for like a week afterwards and missed work and felt terrible about that. And she came back just furious with me. And I said, well, who told you to do that? You know, like we didn't have a discussion about that. And it would be easy to say, well, her value was being an athlete and, um, you know, so, and she'd been avoiding the hills, so she should go and, and ski. But that wasn't what she was avoiding. She was totally used to working through and ignoring her pain signals. That was her whole life. She worked 12-hour days. She was um, very used to that. What she'd never done was asked for help. And when she asked for help or allowed herself to be vulnerable or admitted she had a disability, all sorts of stuff around shame and mm hatred self-hatred and all kinds of stuff came up so we had this whole conversation about you know um let's talk about adaptive skiing let's talk about coaches that work with folks to do skiing in a way that won't hurt you more mm. and at first she was she threw up all sorts of avoidance and was like I'm not disabled enough for that I don't deserve those programs those programs are limited funding I don't even know where I'd go with that and so we did some troubleshooting around that. And eventually I talked her into going on a one-time basis to an adaptive ski hill and working with a coach. And that of course was an amazing experience and shifted all kinds of things for her. And it was social and she learned how to ski in a way that she was able to get up the next morning and continue with her life instead of being in terrible pain. And she worked through her, her avoidance and her shame around being in a body that didn't work the way she thought a healthy body should. Um, and so, so key, but it would have been really easy to get stuck thinking, well, she's just avoiding the hill. I should make her go ski rather than know what she's avoiding is feeling vulnerable. Yes. And that's what she needs to do the work around. And so really being thoughtful that it's, there are some clients where what they're avoiding is going skiing and that's what they need to go do, you know, but that it is so personal. It's not you can't say there may be some times when the thing you're avoiding is going out to the protest, but there may also be times when the thing you're avoiding is protecting other people and staying safe by staying home. Yes. You know, so you have to be really thoughtful about what, what's the real value and what's the thing that you're avoiding or um, afraid that you'll experience here and how can you practice acceptance around that? You know, one thing that I was thinking of when you when you kind of got got to the end of that beautiful reflection is that that matches exactly with what um, I believe it was Paul Gilbert and his research team found um, as a result of their um, scale, the um, what's it called, the barriers to self-compassion scale yeah. and that the top construct that um, comes up in barriers to self-compassion is fear of vulnerability. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's amazing how frequently that comes up, that right. the, the anger that people have around not having the kind of body that our culture tells us you're supposed to have, yes. which is fascinating because absolutely nobody has that body. Right. <laughs> right. In some way, you're deviating from that body. But there's so much shame around that and the willingness to allow yourself to be vulnerable and say, yep, my body isn't uh doesn't meet the thin ideal and it doesn't meet the beauty ideal and for that matter it isn't even fully able-bodied it has all of these disabilities in various ways um and not only that it breaks every day a little more <laughs> and i'm going to need more and more help the older i get and because uh for many of us in the western world we live in this heavily individualistic culture that says it's all your fault it's all your responsibility suck it up and be perfect um, and that's especially, of course, even worse in the United States where healthcare is basically impossible to get, you know, one way or another. Um, yeah, so it, it's a tremendous vulnerability to say, hey, 
I'm a frail human. I'm broken in all these ways. You know, I have suffering and pain in all these ways. How can I live effectively? How can I connect intimately with other people, even with that, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, yeah, the being with and being alongside and honoring Mm -hmm. not only our own human experience, but um, the experiences of others as they show up, you know, through the lens of um, what's been accessible to us. Yeah. Hmm. With the patient I was describing earlier, we had lots and lots of conversations about that. Like she felt like she had to be perfect at work. So Mm -hmm. no one would know, you know, sort of that she was sick. And we talked a lot about what kind of world do you want to build? Because I want to build a world where we have space to be sick and where our colleagues care for us when we're sick and where we're not discarded or thrown away because we're not perfectly healthy all the time. What kind of world do you want to build? And of course, she was very similar. Uh, She worked in a healthcare profession. She adored caring for people, found that very, very rewarding. She was totally out there wanting to build a world where people could be cared for gently when they were injured or sick. Like, why doesn't that apply to you? You know, you want that for yourself too, right? Not just the paying customers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could please tell people where to find out more about you because you are an absolute wealth of experience and knowledge and wisdom and insight as is evidenced by our fairly brief conversation here today um i know that you know in the time in the time that we have connected over the past you know six months or so i i'll just speak for myself and say that i have just learned so much from you i'm deeply deeply appreciative of um the gifts and the generosity with which you show up i i just uh, thank you is not enough that's for sure so I'm very oh. keen for people to find out more about you and to please get your hands on your book the acceptance based approaches um, for weight concerns which also has an accompanying workbook as well which I'm a big fan of workbooks personally because it gives you something a little bit more tangible to work with yeah. you know the practices and the experientials are so key to acceptance-based approaches. So um, so where can people find out more about you and and, and um, just as importantly, to learn from you via your workbooks and books? Ah, I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for those totally sweet and undeserved words. Words I have to figure out how to pay you later. <laughs> no. <Those> words. <laughs> But uh, in terms of where folks can find me, I do have a website, margaretberman.com. I'm very bad about making sure it's updated, but I do try occasionally at least to update it. Folks can find things for me uh, for me there. Uh, like I say, the two books are available. They're on Amazon and they're on, uh, you know, your, your local bookstore, which of course I'd much prefer you patronized as well, can get a hold of them for you. I agree. Having a workbook is so... Um, Routledge, actually, when they approached me to publish the book, initially was just thinking of a clinician manual. They didn't, they weren't planning a self-help book. Um, but we had this whole conversation and they got so excited about it. They're like, well, we've never done that before, but we're going to try it for this. And now they've done it uh, more since. So I'm glad I was able to kind of talk them into that um, arrangement. Because, yeah, the having the um, something you can write in and journal in and do experiential exercises, so helpful in working through the work. And, of course, I love the clinician's guide. I wrote it. Of course I do. Um, And I think it's got a lot of really valuable content in it that people will enjoy. And like say, you can get those sort of on any, um, any place where you buy your books. Uh, As far as upcoming speaking engagements or times to learn from me. So um, the American Psychological Association usually is an in-person conference, but not this year, right? Like everywhere else. I, um, and in fact, they, Uh, If you're a psychologist or even if you're not, you're just interested in psychological constructs, usually it's, what, about 400 bucks to attend that conference, but this year it's 50. So it's incredible to attend the virtual conference is incredibly inexpensive. And I will be giving a um, CE workshop, which is an additional cost on top of the 50, but very reasonable for CE if you're a psychologist listening and you need continuing education credits. Um, And also, I just think it would be interesting for any listener. Uh, So I will be giving a um, continuing education workshop as part of the APA annual convention. If you just search my name on the website, you'll find it. And also free included with that 50 bucks, I'm doing a workshop on weight stigma um, with a bunch of other clinicians that folks could come to too, that I think will be really interesting and fun. 
Um, so that's, I think the first week in August is when all of that sort of virtual content will be available. Um, so check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, other speaking engagements as they come up or teaching and training opportunities, I do tend to put on my website so folks can check that out. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, I know, you know, we, we're still kind of talking in the background here, but hopefully we'll be, you know, releasing a new opportunity for people to engage with um, Dr. Janine Anderson and Dr. Margaret Berman and myself um, in the in another act course. So watch this space because right, yeah. because the honest truth is we're not sure how we're going to do this, but, um, but we are talking about it. We have some very exciting ideas. Yeah. We do. We're full of ideas. <laughs> so we're going to take action and, and, and bring these ideas to you because we have a stack of people who have been really interested. So we hope to see some of you, um, you know, at some, at, at, you know, some kind of event coming up. Margaret, again, thank you so, so much. Um, I have learned again so much more from you today. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you and thank you so much for sharing uh, with not only me, but also our broader audience today. I really appreciate you so much. Yes, and thank you so much for inviting me. This was so fun. I, I'll, we just always have a great time talking and it was just great to have that experience with you and hopefully it was good for the listeners as well. And yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'll talk to you soon, Margaret. All right, take care. We'll see you later. Bye. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.